Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. Between September 1814 and June 1815, against the backdrop of Napoleon's exile to Elba and his brief return, but just days before his final defeat at Waterloo, the Congress of Vienna worked out a new way to balance the power of the great powers to avoid future conflict. This system was called the Concert of Europe, and it was supposed to keep the peace. And indeed, on the eve of World War I, many people in Europe could look back on a century of relative peace on the continent, a golden age of European power and civilization. Now, of course, there had been regional conflicts in Europe and colonial wars, but nothing again on the scale of the Napoleonic Wars. There was a sense that civilization had progressed beyond that, that it was no longer in the best interest of any great power to disrupt peace. And yet, what started as a small regional conflict in 1914 spiraled quickly into World War. We often say that World War I was a war with a long fuse. Was the Congress of Vienna and the system it set up a long-term root cause of the war? Was a system designed to keep the peace the instrument that actually disrupted the peace? Today, we are joined by Professor Greg Jackson, creator, host, and head writer of the U.S. History Podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. Professor Jackson also headlines a live U.S. tour, The Unlikely Union, a hundred-minute epic tale of the first 100 years of American history, which will be playing at the Attics Theater right here in Norfolk, Virginia, on Friday, February 16th. Welcome, Professor Jackson, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So start us off with a primer on the Congress of Vienna. Who was there? What is the purpose of the conference and how does it shape Europe for the next century? Sure. So I think the key thing we got to lock in on is that Europe is coming out of the Napoleonic Wars. You add to that the French Revolutionary Wars, and that means that the European continent has been just devastated by total war for basically two decades. So imagine this, pretty much every single European either has been to war, knows someone who's been to war, and not just in a, never downplaying anyone's role in a war, but you know, in very gruesome ways, everyone's lost someone or they've lost an appendage. You know, They're mentally scarred. That's the state of mind that Europe is in as the five great powers, to now get to that part of your question, who is there, uh, are sitting down in Vienna. Now, uh, among those, we have um, Britain's Lord Castlereagh. We have Russia's uh, Count von Nesselrode from Prussia, uh, which is one of the Germanic kingdoms, one of the big powerhouse uh, Germanic kingdoms. Uh, we need to remember that there's no such thing as Germany as we know it today. You've got a whole bunch of different Germanic uh, principalities and kingdoms. So from Prussia, we've got Karl August von Hardenberg. He's basically deaf, a really old senior uh, guy. And then we've got Wilhelm von Humboldt uh, from Austria, though, we, we've and our host, because of course, Vienna, we're in Austria. We have Metternich, uh, Clemens von Metternich. And this guy is one of the, the icons, basically, of European history in the 19th century. A conservative, a um, important figure for decades of Austrian political history. So we definitely want to note him. Now, those four powers, they all allied against Napoleon the in the the sixth coalition or at least once Austria was out from under the thumb of Napoleon 
and uh, work together to, to beat him. And so that's finally happened. Now, France has been invited to the to the chat, to this let's make peace and end this awful state of war uh, discussion. But, you know, how, how big of a role is he going to play? Well, he's meant to kind of sit in the corner and, and mind himself. That's not how it plays out. We can get to that, though. And then uh, finally, we have players from many, many other countries and um groups across Europe, but they're all at the kiddies table. It's really the originally these four allies, these four major allies. And then, yeah, Talleyrand's going to weasel his way into things. And so it'll be those five great powers that really call all the shots. You mentioned the kiddies table, and this leads me into my next question. Yes. So the Congress of Vienna really ignores the sovereignty of smaller nations or the hopes for sovereignty, perhaps of different ethnic groups throughout Europe. It draws new borders, it redistributes smaller nations and groups in whatever way it seems to balance Europe. How does this help set the stage for World War I? So, yeah, I'm going to definitely stick with the kiddies table analogy because that's 100% it. This is Thanksgiving. They're in the other room away from the parlor where they're not meant to you know, touch anything expensive or nice. Uh, we have countries that simply cease to exist. A uh, few little republics uh, like Venice in what is modern day Italy, poof, gone. Gone at the will of this Congress. I mean, it's really kind of a crazy thing when you think about that from a 21st century perspective to imagine, you know, a small room with some guys from a few big countries just redrawing the map of Europe. But that's exactly what they did. Now, there are a, a lot of things about the Congress of Vienna that I'm going to praise later, but this is hands down the, the greatest sin, the greatest shortcoming. Uh, self-determination is really not a thing yet. We got to remember that Woodrow Wilson, when he comes out with his 14 points, starts talking about self-determination as kind of a human right. He doesn't use those exact words, but that's where he's taking us when we get to World War I, not, not to get too far ahead here. But Let's pause and note, why would he need to say that at the end of World War I? Why would that need to be one of the 14 points? Well, that's because it's not been uh, a belief up to really up to that point. It's been a world of empires where might makes right. So in that same vein, the five great powers of Europe, they push nations together. They split them apart. You know, they, they truly just draw this map. They're ignoring the rising tide of liberalism, classical liberalism. So these are, you know, your values of um, kind of free markets, um, representative government, th those sorts of things. Now, they're old school monarchs. So of course, they're not loving a, a bunch of uh, non-royals talking about democracy. It, it makes sense. In addition to that, nationalism, once again, in a world where might makes right, well, you have empires that aren't drawn along borders where there's some sort of common culture. It's simply what can I conquer? And that's what I rule. So nationalism, while that's going to take a pretty nasty turn in, in terms of what nationalism can mean in the 20th century, uh, that, of, of course, we get to the extreme uh, nationalism of, of the Nazis leads us into World War II. But at this point, when we say nationalism, you're, you're really talking about a rejection of, of these massive empires that have just conquered people, where you have people saying, you know, we really think maybe there should be this smaller kingdom where we have commonalities, 
we all speak Italian in this little corner of the of this little peninsula, and we all are Catholic, and we'd rather just be our own thing and not told by German-speaking Protestants or whatever the case may be, how our lives should be led. So those burgeoning ideologies, uh, the Congress of Vienna is trying to just cram those things down and keep them from, from boiling up, but kind of like a, a, a boiling pot of water, putting a lid on it, you might not see the bubbles. That's not going to work in the long run, though. At the Congress of Vienna, the French diplomat Talleyrand gets the allies, and I put that in quotations, of the coalition that defeated Napoleon to stop referring to themselves as the allies. And I think in your podcast, you cover this story pretty well. (laughs) He makes it very clear that using that kind of terminology will be a non-starter. Like there's, there's no way for France to sit at the table as one of the great powers and have this conversation and establish a workable model for peace if you guys are the allies and France is outside. So we consider the alliance system something that does lead to World War I. How does the Concert of Europe try to deal with alliances? Is there an effort to say, let's not do this, or are alliances integral to this idea of balancing Europe? So they're trying to avoid alliances. They're, they're trying to kill alliances between the great powers. And they're also trying to balance the power between the great powers. Now, as you as you said, yes, I do tell this story in uh, it's episode 128, the, the causes of World War I. I always enjoy telling stories that involve Talleyrand. Of course, my podcast is US history focused, so I don't get to do that as much. But he's such a fascinating, fun character. If you'll just indulge me for a second there, uh, Talleyrand said that anyone who had who was born after the French Revolution had never really lived. Uh, he's a noble, right? Like he knew life at Louis' court. And that to him, that was living. Everything after, pff, nothing. Which also gives you a pretty good idea of just how decadent it must have been if afterward he's just like, uh, is it even worth breathing anymore? This guy, think think about this. France goes through this violent revolution with multiple stages. I, I, I promise I won't go too deep here. But it is a constant change of regimes. The very revolutionaries at one point who are in charge uh, find themselves at the guillotine by the end of it, right? Then Napoleon rises a- afterward. Napoleon, uh, born from the revolution and yet turns it into an empire. And after all that said and done, we get to 1815, we get to this Congress of Vienna. We actually have the same family, right? Louis XVI's brother comes back to the throne uh, as Louis XVIII, deferring to his poor nephew who died in the revolution, saying there will just never be a 17th. Okay, all that regime change, Talleyrand is always there. I mean, it'd be like, you know, it, to try and give a U.S. equivalent, if you had a, a, the, the president going back and forth between Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, and there's this one guy who just is always in the cabinet. Like, that's insane. But that's Talleyrand. That is how good this guy is diplomatically. Napoleon referred to Talleyrand as in a silk stocking. This man is just smooth, uh, a smooth operator. So that's the guy who's at Vienna. And yeah, he he manages to kind of massage the conversation and, and get them to really feel they need France to be a part of it. So by the end, yes, France is a complete player with the other four. So the five great powers are really working together. And they even let France keep some of the territory that was conquered under Napoleon by the time all is said and done. I mean, it's I'm floored. Talleyrand, he is the guy you want. If you have a PR firm and you could bring someone back from the dead, this guy could spin whatever your issue is into gold or into a silk stocking, as the case may be. All that said, they've set up a system so that the five great powers are all about equal in power. 
And if any one of them tries to go in on another conquest bender, if anyone gets a little, you know, uh, Napoleon fever, if you will, well, the other four are going to team up instantaneously and crush them and bring them down. That's the theory behind it. So this does not give itself to alliances at all. The whole point of the concert of Europe is to avoid alliance systems that would enable uh, these powers to basically feel it like they're strong enough to, to take on the others. If all of them are isolated and they know the other four will gang up on them, it's really going to keep them in check. And that's kind of the idea behind this concert. And you think about that, like a concert, if you're going to see a classical concert, you've got all these instruments that are working together. And that's the idea is that these five great powers, despite their rivalries, their massive empires, Britain and France both have colonial holdings all over the world, uh, that that they're going to be working together rather than necessarily being uh, against each other. So historians seem to think that the concert of Europe and how it works changes over the 19th century, and that maybe by the 1870s, there's more of a focus on nations and an assumption that nations are kind of the building block of international relations. Why then at that point does the concert of Europe seem to permit these building and building of alliances? Why is that allowed to go on? Well, it does evolve. The The concert of Europe absolutely evolves, just like every organization on Earth, uh, every country uh, on Earth. Uh, if you brought uh, Americans back to life from the 1790s and the 1800s, uh, they would be blown away at some of the ways we interpret the federal government, for instance, uh, and some of the changes that we've that we've made the the constitutional amendments that we've put in place. The concert of Europe, likewise, is you know think about this. We've got generations of Europeans coming and going. By the time we get to the 1870s, it's been half a century. Yeah, things have definitely evolved uh, in that evolution. Uh, they're still trying to keep that pot. The the conservatives are the the conservative leaders of these empires still trying to keep that pot in that boiling water. But it's very much boiling now. That boiling water of liberalism and nationalism. To return to my earlier analogy. Uh, and so the concert of Europe does have to evolve because those those drives, those ideas are becoming too powerful. Uh, in the 18, uh, 1830, 1832, around there, we had a series of revolts and revolutions. France, for instance, you know, when the concert of Europe was made, we had it under the a Bourbon monarchy, just newly restored post-Napoleon. Well, by the time we're into uh, the, the, the 1870s, France has changed its government multiple times. It, it's been a republic briefly in the 1850s. In the 1860s, it's we're actually returned to yet another Napoleonic empire under uh, Napoleon's nephew, Louis Napoleon. And by 1870, it's a republic. So changing governments, they have different ideas as to how Europe should fit and work together. Uh, nationalism has won in France, and it's also winning in Prussia, as in 1870 into 1871, that is the the Franco-Prussian War, this war between France and Germany, which is the last of three in a series of very intentionally crafted wars by uh, Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor of Prussia. Uh, it, it was all done in the name of German nationalism to make Prussia merge with over 20 of these other smaller Germanic states to create modern day Germany. Well, when he does that in 1871, we now have this massive sprawling German empire. It doesn't balance with the other powers. It's so much bigger. It's got such a larger population than the other great powers. Well, can you tell an empire that it needs to dismantle itself? If we really stick to the original concert of Europe? Yes, we do. 
Bismarck tries to counter that by saying, no, 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 we, we don't want to conquer anything else. This is it. This is, we just want to be a unified people per this idea of nationalism that all of Europe is seeming to embrace. It's, it only makes good sense for all of these nations to merge as one Germany. All of those tensions have to be dealt with. So the concert of Europe, it tries to evolve. Now, some historians would actually argue the concert of Europe is dead. Some point to the revolutions of 1848, uh, again, another year where uh, the causes of liberalism and nationalism flow across the continent. Some say that it's 1870, 71, as both Italy and Germany, as we know them today, the modern states are forming through the unification of the various uh, Italian kingdoms and the various Germanic states. And of course, some say the concert of Europe is breathing its its last breath all the way up to, to the bitter end, 99 years after its establishment in 1914. In some ways, it's kind of semantics. Uh, the fact of the matter is, whether we want to say it still existed or it morphed, Europe was evolving with these new ideas about liberalism and nationalism, and uh, the concert of Europe couldn't keep them at bay. You've mentioned the wars of unification, and this is resulting in the creation of new states in the 19th century. And obviously, this does complicate the balance of power. But what do you think was more destabilizing? The unification of Germany, the unification of Italy, or the creation of Belgium? All things that this concert of Europe, if it still does exist, permits. Um, well, first of all, let me note that they're all super destabilizing. Belgium is a fun one. Th this goes back to um, the, the 1830s and the revolutionary forces that were coming out of that. Belgium's created, and it's this small little state just north of France. The concert agrees that if anyone invades little tiny Belgium, which we have to note is a very industrial rich area. So coal, iron, all, all, all those raw materials needed for the very things that a industrializing Europe, which is what's happening in the 19th century, would want and need. Well, it's got all the European powers salivating for it. They'd love to go snatch Belgium. So that's where they all agree. Okay, no one is going to take Belgium. It's like, you know, you've, you've got this tasty dessert that you've brought home and everybody's salivating over it. And uh, you're afraid one of the kids is going to just snatch it up and run up to their bedroom. So you you have them all watching each other. They all agree no one is going to steal this pie, whatever it might be. That treaty is drawn up in 1838, signed by 1839. And of course, Britain is going to cite that treaty when the Germans cross through Belgium to invade France in 1914 for their reason for joining the war. Italy. Italy's not a great power. Um, one of my favorite uh, book titles <laughs> that one of my professors mentioned back when I was working on my PhD uh, was Italy, the least of the great powers. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it's not been a player really since, I mean, the Renaissance in some, in some ways, you might even push back to Rome. It's been all these small kingdoms, small republics, city-states. So as it emerges in uh, 1871, well, Italy has now been reborn as, you know, a minor, smallest of, but nonetheless, kind of a great power sort of role. So it's kind of like the cute little little brother who wants to hang out with the, with the big five. And uh, they, they let him come and watch them play basketball. And Italy can go fetch it whenever it goes out of bounds. Um, but it will now form a part of a, an alliance that's being put together by Germany. So finally, Germany, the unification there. So this is under Prussian leadership. I mentioned Otto von Bismarck. Uh, I simultaneously revere this man's intellect and am appalled <laughs> at some of his actions. I don't know if there is a more brilliant and uh, just nation self-serving 
individual in the 19th century, the way he manipulates the whole continent and fabricates wars to craft a unified Germany out of all these small Germanic states uh, with his emperor, Wilhelm, as, the, as or excuse me, his king, the Prussian king, Wilhelm, as the emperor of this new uh, Germanic empire, the Second Reich. Uh, I mean, it's it's brilliant. I can't call it all ethical, but it's brilliant. And nothing destabilizes, in my opinion, the concert of Europe as much as that, in particular, because they take Alsace-Lorraine. And this is a region of France. Now, before it was a region of France, you dial that back quite a ways. It was under German control at one point. And it still has a very heavy Germanic population, kind of like the border on, on really any nation, right? You're, you're going to find uh, a lot of French speakers if you go up into the, the state of Maine and northern Maine in the United States. I grew up in Southern California, a lot of Spanish speaking there. It, you, you always have a bit of a cultural, you know, kind of bleed over on, on borders. So in the name of nationalism, Unified Germany claims that it needs to take Alsace-Lorraine, and it's just beaten France in the Franco-Prussian War. And, you know, just insult to injury, they proclaim themselves an empire in uh, Versailles. In you know, France is no longer under a, a Louis. It's no longer using Versailles as its castle. But this is the shrine of French power. This is, it's the emblem of, of French greatness. And they go in there and proclaim Germany's awesomeness and existence. I mean, this would be like, if you imagine the United States going to war um, and and losing, uh, take our, I, I'm not going to project any sort of <laughs> negative future here. So we'll just, we'll say Martians. Let's go with a completely ridiculous example here. We'll, we'll, we'll leave planet Earth. And they proclaim their empire, you know, in the U.S. Capitol building. Or like they, they go to, say, um, Philadelphia, that would be the better example. They go to Independence Hall, and that's where they proclaim it. I mean, that is an insult. That's salt in the wound, right? So that is just smoldering in France for the next several decades. French children are taught their geography of France with Alsace-Lorraine blacked out on the map and the geography teacher pointing to it. And remember, France segregates, remember, as though I'm assuming people know this. France in the Third Republic segregated uh, public schools. So boys went to, to, to class together. Girls went to class together. Uh, it's kind of fun to be in, in Paris, Marseille, some of these cities I've done research in. You walk by a really old public school and you'll still see etched in the, you know, the granite in the stone above it, the, the two separate entrances. And there's fille and garçon, right? The, the girl entrance, the boy, they can't even go in the same doors together. Anyhow, so the, the, these classrooms filled with young boys, they are taught this is a part of our country. The Germans have taken it. You need to grow up and liberate your brethren. So that is, you, you can see how that fuse is burning. You've got a generation and change by the time we get to 1914. You know, who's to say how many kids buy it? But you've got plenty of young Frenchmen, young French adults by 1914. They have been taught it is their duty to liberate their, their French brothers taken by German unification. So that to me is uh, my personal opinion. Germany is the, the most damning in this slow trot to uh, the total war that is the Great War. So you think the unification of Germany really drives the French into the arms of the English? That and takes some time because obviously there's some issues there, but you think that particular creation of Germany just triggers much more intense anti-German alliances across the continent? It, it does. So Germany is now, remember, twice as strong pretty much as any other major power. And France 
I mean, they have a term for this, or basically revenge, right? They are going to get Alsace-Lorraine back. Now, Otto von Bismarck for the next 20 years, again, brilliant guy. He then starts creating these alliance systems because he knows France has to be too weak, you know, to, to even dare to act on this revanchism that it's feeling. So it sets up alliances that keeps France totally isolated. Well, that's all well and good while Wilhelm is the emperor, but then he dies. His next, uh, his heir dies. And so his spare, the old saying, right, to have an heir and a spare, his spare becomes the heir. And this is Wilhelm II. And he's a young 20-something who's sure he knows better than this old guy, Otto von Bismarck, kind of puts him out to pasture. And he proceeds, uh, you know, a little bit of simplification here, but he proceeds to basically just upset everyone in Europe with all sorts of ridiculous assumptions. Uh, He kind of thinks he can push around the British because, well, Queen Victoria is his grandma. Remember, all the royals intermarry. So he feels like he's got this sort of like cousin relationship that means he doesn't need to try as hard with the English. Well, he gets himself into an arms race then with, with Britain as they as he starts replicating their dreadnought battleship that comes out in 1906. Uh, so Britain's getting really anxious about Germany. Uh, the, the The projection in the early 19-teens is that the 20th century will, will be the German century, that they're going to be the new power. Well, Britain's been the top dog for, for quite a while. And so it's feeling anxious, kind of the way some Americans are feeling anxious right now toward China. That, that sort of, who's this rising power? Do we need to worry about them? Well, at the same time, uh, Wilhelm II lets a number of the alliances that have been formed start to slip. So he doesn't worry about trying to balance the Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire's interests in the Balkans with Russia's interest in the Balkans. Both of them want to move in on it. The Ottoman Empire, which is, has ruled this area of southeastern Europe, known as the Balkans, uh, for centuries is waning. It's known, the Ottomans are known as the sick man of Europe. They're losing power. So both Austria and Russia are angling for it. Otto von Bismarck always kept those two Again, speaks to his brilliance. These two have very, you know, zero sum opposing interests. And yet somehow here's Otto going, we can all be friends. It's fine. Not a problem. Here's a treaty. I got it worked out, guys. We're chill. Well, Wilhelm II lets that slide. So one of the reasons he does is because he figures, who cares? Russia can go do whatever it wants. I'm just going to hang out with Austria. The French would never hook up with Russia. The French are a republic. Again, the, the changes that have happened since the concert of Europe, right? France is a republic. They are always talking about their liberty, equality, and brotherhood. They would never work with an autocrat like the czar of Russia. That's just insane. Except the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? The Russians like French champagne. Of course, right? Come on. Well, and you know, there's great goose today. So clearly the French decided that. That is all right. So... Um, you know, the, these these powers in, in France and Britain, they they start to set aside their global differences as the, the two European powers that have really gone around the world and, and set up massive empires. Germany has set itself up as such a massive threat on the continent and under Wilhelm II has made such a small effort to ensure those relationships stay strong and good that it leads the traditional enemies of Britain and France to come together. It leads the absolutely opposed political ideologies of France and Russia to set their uh, differences aside and come together. So yeah, for, for, for my money, it's uh, it's German unification. That's really the, the linchpin that just almost sets us on a uh, unavoidable path to where the assassination of one heir presumptive of one empire could then trigger a global war. Do you think 
peace is only possible in a system like that when you have absolutely brilliant and competent, not necessarily ethical, but brilliant <laughs> and competent diplomats or leaders. Um, you do need, I mean, it doesn't need to be superhuman, but I do think that every nation is capable of putting brilliant and capable leaders forward. An important reality of making peace. And now we kind of step into, well, as I believe you know, I'm, I'm actually a professor of national security. So I, I get to have these conversations quite a bit with my students. When we're talking about sovereign nations, you know, we really need to remember what sovereignty means. There isn't anything o- above the nation state in our in our current system that that hems them in. You know, we have differences in the United States, even if it's a difference between two states or someone sues the federal government. There's a legal system that can handle those differences. Someone might win, someone might lose. There might be a partial win, partial lose scenario. But with nation states, they have to choose to subject themselves to the other nation, whether that's a treaty uh, or simply agreeing not to go to war. So when we take that realism approach, uh, you know, we, we realize that nations really do need to be able to talk and they've got to be able to find a, a way where they feel their interests are being served better by not drawing the sword than they would be if they do draw the sword. Frankly, war should be thought of as, if you'll follow me for a minute, it is in a way a diplomatic tool. It's the last one in the tool chest. And it's, of course, the absolute polar opposite of what we think of when we think of diplomacy. No nation wants to destroy its resources, lose uh, lose its people, at least not abstractly. They only go for that when they're genuinely convinced that this is what is in the nation's best interest, or rather the leaders are convinced that it's in the nation's best interest. So to preserve peace, it is crucial to have leaders that that value all the other tools in, in the, the diplomatic toolbox and uh, are ready and willing to make compromises. Uh, and of course, you know, their human history has taught us that there will always be some line at which a nation is going to cross over and say it's time to draw the sword. I do think, though, that that can be avoided if you have, well, the sorts of minds that initially sat down at the concert of Europe. You talked earlier about a boiling pot, and if you put a lid on it, it's just going to explode. Do you think the Congress of Vienna and then the concert of Europe that it sets up is that pot? Do you think the Congress of Vienna is a root cause of World War One? It definitely put a lid on that pot. Is it a cause of World War One? It's where I start in telling the tale myself of World War One. Cause is the is the word that I guess causes me just a little bit of hang up because I'm I am in fact so deeply impressed by the Congress of Vienna. Uh, it has its shortcomings that definitely lead us toward World War One. Uh, nationalism, liberalism, not being able to be explored is is a contributing factor. But before we take the gentlemen uh, seated around those tables in Vienna and uh, blame them for uh, a catastrophic war that counted its casualties by the tens of millions. I want to point out <laughs> just how hard diplomacy is. Uh, prognostication is a painfully difficult thing. Trying to predict what is going to come five years down the road, our politicians can't do that today. They put together a piece that endured, by and large, excluding some minor wars, uh, but prevented the total war that they had just lived through from returning to the European continent for 99 years. That is a remarkable success. And at some point, you do also have to let the the following generations 
take their credit slash blame. And I, I say that in part, my mind actually goes to the end of World War I. Uh, the book, Paris 1919, uh, the author's name eludes me at this moment. She makes a fantastic point, though. Uh, McMillan, that, Margaret McMillan. Margaret, yes, yes, yeah. that is it. So Margaret makes this fantastic point about the the shortcomings of the Peace of Paris, which, of course, leads to another global war far sooner than the concert of Europe. And her point is that that peace for all of its shortcomings could have been much worse and that whether we're talking about Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson, uh, David Lloyd George, you know, they can't predict. They don't know what their successors are going to do. I would apply that same logic to to Vienna to have laid a path out that three to four generations of Europeans were able to follow before they fell back into total war. That is a remarkable achievement. Uh, so I, I do think that they actually deserve quite a bit of credit, despite uh, despite their shortcomings. When, when we get into counterfactual history, we always tend to, to look at something to think, oh, you know, if Hitler just wasn't born, we wouldn't have the, the Holocaust in World War II. Well, no, we we don't know that. We just know that things would have played out a little bit differently. And something we never get to know when we look at whatever tragic event, a, a world war, a civil war, you name it, uh, we don't know how much worse it could have been. And so that's another thing I'd like to leave your listeners pondering is that for all the shortcomings of Vienna, how much worse might things have been in this industrializing century had a total war consumed Europe even sooner? Now, as historians, sometimes I think we can keep going farther back and farther back and farther back. I mean, oh, we, totally. we, we could probably trace the roots of World War One to, I don't know, the something happening in Gaul in ancient times. But um, there's a famous quote by the Austrian statesman Metternich, and he said something to the effect that when France sneezes, the rest of Europe catches a cold. <laughs> You think we could say that some of those really, really far back kind of abstract roots of World War I are in the French Revolution or in the really intense reactions to roll back the French Revolution? Uh, I going do. too far. <laughs> sure. Yes. I mean, the, 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 I mean, you're right. As as you as you make that comment in jest, I'm just sitting here thinking. I bet we could blame World War One on Charlemagne. I feel like that's possible, but we won't go there. Uh, um, yes, I, I do think that there's something to it. Now, Metternich, as I recall, was was commenting on the French Revolution of 1830 when he made that comment, which then led to Belgium coming out about that same time. But going back to the French Revolution, when when we say French Revolution, we mean 1789 for sure. Uh, yes, that that's where liberalism and nationalism really started to get some wings, start to take flight in European thought, even if it resulted in Napoleon's empire. You know, that, well, forget the wings. Let's go back to my boiling pot just for continuity's sake, right? That's when the pot was placed on the fire. That tepid water started to boil. Um, some of those ideas are quite excellent. They are ideas that, well, the French were looking to them after we had implemented them in the United States and we still use them today. Uh, so I, I, I'm recalcitrant to, to say, oh, if only those ideas hadn't spread. No, we. I'm, I'm a big fan of democracy myself. Um, but that mercurial idea and the way it would uh, explode on a continent filled with um, with kings and autocrats. Yeah, the French Revolution is kind of where that, that fire started to burn. So you're coming to Norfolk, Virginia in several weeks, February 16, 2024, for the live tour of The Unlikely Union. And the show is over at the Historic Attics Theater, not too far away from where the MacArthur Memorial is in downtown Norfolk. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the show? Sure. So the 
the unlikely union i'm i'm on stage telling stories being my my historian and storyteller self and in 100 minutes i take us through roughly 100 years of us history going from the start of the french and indian war uh, with a young 22 year old george washington learning the hard way uh, just how uh, <laughs> well how not to lead an army lessons he will take with them into the revolution and by the time we're done we've pushed through the civil war it's the the story of United States birth and its rebirth in the revolution. And through that, I I take you into the personal lives of various historical figures, both the big traditional names that you'll know, like George Washington, John Adams, and to some uh, lesser figures, or rather not lesser figures, but lesser known. Frederick Douglass plays a central role in, in my recounting of this tale. The, the real star of the show and well, it, it's told in a very fun way. Uh, lights, music, uh, you name it. I, I bring musicians with me. Um, it's a multimedia experience. But the real star of the show is the union itself. I, I'd say especially in our slightly uh, less comfortable days on, on the political scene and in an election year where people tend to ask some harder questions about uh, where the U.S. is at. I've, I love telling the story because it is the story of the United States struggling within itself and overcoming these struggles and ultimately coming together and Americans seeing themselves as Americans. So it is truly a story of unity. It's why I call this the unlikely union, because it's the story of that miracle, the the union that is the United States. That's some incredible history in a hundred minutes. It it almost makes me think a little bit of the reduced Shakespeare company and their uh, complete <laughs> abridged works of, of William Shakespeare. But I'm I'm sure it is absolutely a fantastic show. Uh, I spent a year working away on, on this, trying to whittle down and make sure that the story is both engaging and detailed and yet done quickly enough that it could be a two act, you know, come enjoy yourself at a theater sort of show. I'm I am quite pleased with how it's turned out. Well, thank you very much, Professor Jackson, for our conversation today. And you can find his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you live in Norfolk or Richmond, Virginia, or the D.C. area, you can catch one of his live shows over President's Day weekend, February 16th through the 18th, 2024. Check our episode notes for a link to more information about his podcast and the live show. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.